This podcast episode is brought to you by RX Bar. Visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator for 25% off your first order. Recovery Elevator episode 146. Well, you know, I would try to limit myself to three drinks a day, and I wouldn't drink every day, but it was, it was getting harder and harder to stick to that three drink limit. As I got older, I guess, it, I just kept, the hangovers kept getting worse. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,175 days. On today's podcast, we've got Mike. He's 33 years old. He's from Vermont, and he's been sober for 86 days. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me. I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. This episode is part two of a 12-part episode series explaining the steps of Alcohol Anonymous. I often get emails from listeners who have questions about the 12 steps. I see it in the Cafe RE groups. There's a lot of trepidation about Alcoholics Anonymous, about the 12 steps, about AA in general. And you know what? AA doesn't bite. So per request of some listeners, I'm going to go through the steps, not 12 consecutive episodes in a row, but one every three, one every four, one every five, just sprinkle them in there. And step one was, I think, two, three episodes ago. Go figure. So step two, here we go. Step two reads as follows. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh Uh-oh. Did you just say a power greater than ourselves? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, God, no. I didn't even mean to say the word God, but just just no. My fuck no way. <laughs> and a couple of things to keep in mind before we proceed. AA doesn't demand that you believe in anything, and this is right out of the 12 and 12 book study. All the 12 steps are but suggestions, and to get sober and stay sober, you don't have to swallow all of step two right now. But it's important. It's imperative that you begin exploring a power greater than yourself ASAP. And before we dive more into step two, I encourage you to stop fighting and have an open mind. Step two is what I like to call a barrier step. Anybody can come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but not everybody's going to finish. Step one is a step that most of us, just by simply walking into the doors of AA, we've perfected step one. Step two, however, is one of those where we start to explore that we're not the most important person on this planet. The fact that the planets don't orbit around us. I thought Paul Churchill was the center of the universe for a long time. Turns out, I'm not. Not even close. So let's break down this step word for word. First word is we. Ah, there it is. It's not I came to believe. It's we came to believe. 
the most important tool in recovery's community. And there it is right there. Step two, word number one, we. You have to find a community, a tribe, an altruistic connection to get sober. Okay, let's look at the next three words. Came to believe. Basically, we arrived at a mindset. Now, this is a slow and painful journey that we have all bought tickets for. This is when we start to see the writing on the wall. Maybe we don't got it. Maybe we can't do this ourselves. This is when we can pragmatically look at the data behind us and say, hmm, maybe my ideas and strategies and tools and resources and things that I've put into place, they're not working. That whole only drink after 5 p.m. on the weekends rule, that's not working. I need help. But the good news is you don't have to do this alone. It's we. Now let's look at we came to believe. Now we all had to go through a solo journey through hell to get here. But again, the good news is from here on out, you're not alone unless you choose to be. Okay, power greater than ourselves and stop. I'm going to look at my stats right now and at four minutes and 52 seconds in this podcast, that's when I lost about 32% of listeners right there. Power greater than ourselves? Hell no, that ain't happening. For many, including myself at one point during my journey until the pain became so acute, I didn't have a choice. But for many, this is when we say, nah, I, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I've got a couple more rules and strategies that I haven't put into place. I'm starting a new job. You know, I, I got a new gym membership. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's not going to happen. Like I said, this is a barrier step. But it's no coincidence that power greater than ourselves, that's all it says. That could be a book in itself. But there's no descriptors of what a power greater than ourselves entails. It doesn't talk about a gentleman with long, sandy, wavy, blonde, brown hair wearing Birkenstocks. It doesn't. This power greater than ourselves can literally be anything. And after the interview from Mike, I'm going to talk a little bit about what my higher power is. So at the retreat, we did a 12-step workshop. The gals went to one room and the guys broke off and went to another room. We were lucky to have the author of The Painting and the Piano Fantastic Book, John Lipscomb, with us, who swears by AA. He loves the program. He's been sober for around 15 years, and he knows it through and through. There was another gentleman in the group with us, a, a gentleman earlier in sobriety, who just could not get over the power greater than ourselves. And John laid it out for all of us, especially this gentleman, which made it pretty easy to understand. He said, okay, just take a look in this circle and ask yourself this question. Are all of us sitting here facing inside the circle? Are all of us more powerful than just you alone? He looked at all of us up and down, sized us up and said, yeah, I would have to say you guys might be a little more powerful than myself. And boom, voila, the light bulb went off for this guy. And it was really cool to see. Many people use that same example, G-O-D, but instead of using it as God, they use it as a group of drunks as their higher power. Still having trouble grasping that you're not the most powerful thing on this planet? Well, go to a beach that has large waves, preferably Mavericks in California. Walk out in the surf right before a 10-foot wave breaks on top of you and then ask yourself that same question. The ocean could be your higher power. Again, the emphasis in this step is not what the higher power, the HP, looks like, but it's what the HP, what this higher power can do for us. In terms of finding a higher power, this step is black and white. If you can't find anything, something that is more powerful than you, then your sanity will not be restored. Hell, that's less rules than Fight Club. Super straightforward. 
Okay, now let's look at the word restore. According to dictionary.com, that means to bring back to a state of health, soundness, and vigor. Pretty straightforward once again. Oh, and there's that collective term, us. It's not could restore me to sanity. It's could restore us, that community, to sanity. Now let's look at the word sanity. At first, I thought the use of the word sanity was a bit extreme. But according to dictionary.com, the definition of sanity is the state of being sane, soundness of mind, sound judgment. And the definition of sane is free from mental derangement and having a sound and healthy mind. So use of the word sanity, yeah, great word choice. And also, we all know the definition of insanity, which is where we do the same thing over and over and over and expect a different result. I don't know about you, but that was the definition of my drinking towards the tail end. It was insane. I kept drinking over and over and over, thinking I could have just one, but that never was the case. Now, let's look at those words put together. Restore us to sanity. Saying, if you find a higher power, this higher power will bring back a state of health, a soundness and vigor, will eradicate your mind from any mental derangement, and will put you back in a healthy state of mind. Hmm. Restore us to sanity. Go back to a time when I didn't need alcohol to have fun, didn't need alcohol to a function. Uh, Yeah, sign me up for that. Like I mentioned, I had a lot of trepidation with the higher power part, but the pain got so bad that I didn't have a choice. And that's what happens with a lot of people. Their first experience is like, oh, hell no, not doing this. But they eventually come back because the pain is so acute, so strong that they don't have a choice. One of the reasons why I love step two is it's not an action step. What I mean by that is we're not going left. We're not going right to avoid an uncomfortable feeling. We're staying dead ahead right in the center. We were looking this thing right in the eye and saying, okay, I can't do this alone and I need a higher power. This is a sit with the emotion step. It's not an action step. Are you ready to say goodbye to alcohol? Well, step two will answer this question for you. If you truly have an honest and open mind, then you're ready to find a higher power. You're ready to accept the help from other people than yourself. And you're ready to say goodbye to alcohol, hopefully for good. Now, here's a warning for you. If you start the steps, basically you've admitted that you are powerless over alcohol, step one, and you get to step two and you say, nope, not for me. You're kind of in a state of limbo right now because you're not going to be able to go back and drink and enjoy it. That old way of life, sure, it's always there for you, but it's going to be even more painful because you're going to be cognizant of what is out there, a different way of life that you can ascertain if you find a higher power. So I forget where I read this. I know it's in in like the 12 by 12 study, but it talks about how you're kind of bent over a barrel after step one. So if you've gone through step one, you can't turn back now. Just keep going forward. A lot of people think that step two is the beginning of the end. Not so much, but it is the beginning of the end of your old life. Insert which should be recovery elevator catchphrase. Quitting drinking is an opportunity, not a sacrifice. Boom. Right there. Step two. Email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com if you have any questions about step two, any suggestions, things like that. I hope that helped. And as I mentioned before, this podcast episode is brought to you by RX Bar. Before I said okay to the sponsorship, I had RX Bar send me a box of their bars, and oh my goodness, they are fantastic. RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS. 
It turns out with our X-Bar, real food ingredients actually taste really good. You can actually taste the cacao, the real fruit, and the spices, like sea salt. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. RX bars come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. RX bars are also gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. And don't forget, there's no added sugar. Good nutrition is key to recovery, and RX bars do the trick. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator. Again, visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator. All right, enough out of me. Let's hear from Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Mike. Listeners, Mike emailed me a couple weeks ago about a great, you might be an alcoholic gift line, but we're going to save that till the very end. So sometimes I send a link out to, to emails that I get from people, and so those end up being some of the best interviews. So I'm excited to do this, Mike. But before we get any further, how long have you been sober? I have been sober for 86 days now. 86 days, and before I hit the record button, I was like, what's the sobriety date there? You're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Just 86 days. That's all I need to know. It doesn't really matter. And uh, give listeners a little background about yourself, Mike, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure, yeah. I mean, I live in Vermont, and I, I've been living in Vermont since I was 19. I'm 33 years old now. I'm initially from Delaware, and my family moved around a lot when I was a kid. I spent years living in Texas. I lived in Maryland for a little while. In Vermont, I work as a social worker. Primarily, I work with suicidal people. I've been married for six years, and for fun, I play video games. I hang out with my wife and uh, hang out with my 12-year-old son. also play some music. What kind of music do you play? I play violin. I play classical music on the violin. also play the guitar and the banjo. Nice. You mentioned you like to play video games. Uh, I went through a Call of Duty phase in college. I don't know if that was a phase or whatnot. I don't know if it's completely gone away because I saw a commercial for PS4 World War II Call of Duty edition. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with that? Do you think that's going to be a sweet game? looks pretty cool, yeah. My son plays those Call of Duty games, and he's just like, I don't want to use those old guns in the World War II. He likes a futuristic, like, infinite warfare gun. So they go, okay, man. <laughs> like, okay, dude. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I might I might drop the money and, and spoil myself. Let me look at my app. Oh, I've saved almost thirty-five grand. I think I can, I can do, like, 300 bucks for a PS4, even if I play it twice. So we'll see. Yeah, you deserve it, man. I was going to say, like, a recovery elevator Call of Duty group, you know, get, get some of that stress out. Yeah, you know, we've hit fantasy football leagues. I think that could be added to it. That'd be a lot of fun playing people from across the world, Call of Duty. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> but, uh, Mike, let's get back on track here. So you're 33 years old. You've been sober 86 days. Congratulations on that. That's a great amount of time to build on. When did you first start to realize that, hmm, maybe I don't drink like a normal person? Actually, it was a long time ago. It was back when I was 16 years old. Wow. My drinking really peaked at age 15 or 16, and that's when I was getting totally smashed to the point of vomiting. You know, I was drinking on the way to high school. I was that kid who was just totally drunk at school or at the mall with my friends, just shit-faced. And, you know, I didn't even like alcohol at first when I kept drinking it, but I kept drinking it for months until I became addicted to it. And it was really just pretty much because everybody in my peer was drinking it. And you know, I guess it was when I was about 16, I, I had what you might call an existential crisis, and I converted to Buddhism at 16 years old. And there's this Buddhist precept that basically translate as, I uh, should abstain from drinking and drugs, which cloud the, cloud of the mind. Sure, that do um, physical harm to yourself. 
yeah, and, you know, I had a dad who was an alcoholic, and I knew I didn't want to end up like him. So all those factors, you know, when I was 16, I was like, okay, I'm going to become sober now. And But, I mean, I was under 21. I think I probably made it like six months, and then it was just like a non-issue. You know, I was busy with school and with girls and stuff and just totally forgot about sobriety and alcoholism. And then in my 20s and early 30s, I was drinking as what I thought was like casual drinking. You know, I would take a few days off from drinking here or there. At one point, I did go 55 days of sobriety about 10 years ago and you know this time around I had uh, this low point at the St. Patrick's Day party when you know I knew I needed to quit drinking but I still kept drinking for a few months after that because everyone around me drinking family members drinking and you know eventually I, I looked into the recovery elevator and realized like now's the time to get sober and been sober ever since then. Yeah, and, and and thanks for listening to the podcast Mike I appreciate that and then back it up a little bit you said you know after you know, that sounded like maybe your mid twenties, you drank like a normal person and you thought you were drinking normal amounts. What was your definition of normal amounts? You know, you said you took a couple of days off, but how much were you drinking? Well, you know, I would try to limit myself to three drinks a day and I wouldn't drink every day, but it was, it was getting harder and harder to stick to that three drink limit. As I got older, I guess it, I just kept, the hangovers kept getting worse. And so like, just those things combined, just, well, the guy, I just got to stop this, you know? I mean, one of the things is I just started to think that uh, there's no normal amount of drink. Alcohol is just a poisonous toxin. It's just awful for everybody. It's not good for anybody out there. Boom. At five minutes in this interview, <laughs> value bomb. Number one dropped. Alcohol is poisonous to everybody. There's really not a normal amount anybody can healthily drink. Immediately starts to shut down faculties. And, you know, earlier you mentioned it's getting harder and harder to only have three drinks in a day, and that kind of answered my question: Is did you ever put any rules in the place? And that sounds like a pretty, you know, pretty pretty solid rule that became harder and harder to abide by. Which sounds like the progression. And describe the progression coupled with Father Time, which is a biatch. Hangovers are getting worse and worse. Talk about that progression and how you noticed it. Yeah, I mean, I would start trying to buy those little boxes of wine, which say that you know this is three servings, you know, and, and then sometimes I would just buy the bottle and the. I'd be like, I'm going to drink half this bottle, and, and the bottle would be gone, and I'd be opening up another bottle. And I started to feel like I was in quicksand. You know, Once I would start drinking, just very hard to stop. I love, I'm writing that down right now. I felt like I was in quicksand, like those dreams where we're running in sand on the beach, and we just can't gain any traction. And, and it, it, it's the one word to describe that is exhausting. And can you agree with that? It, doing that dance is exhausting. Oh, man, yeah. yeah. The hangover is just ruining the whole next day and, and sometimes even two days after just not feeling right can you tell us about a time when you did have a hangover that was just brutal yeah i mean just even the last time i drank you know my wife had gone to just play basketball or something over an evening and i was like cool i got the house myself i'm gonna get shit-faced and and uh just the whole next day just lying there feeling like crap unable to really do anything but you know i got stuff going on i i got a lot of stuff on my plate I need to deal with and just being hungover for it is not not working so what would you tell yourself during those hangovers and this is a question I don't think I've ever asked because I, I remember when I would have those vicious brutal two three day hangovers I was swearing off alcohol it, towards the end 
but in the middle, you know, it was of my journey. It was kind of like, man, there was like this cloudy fuzz in my brain that saying one day I'm probably going to have to address this issue. And towards the end, that's when the cognitive dissonance just got so exhausting. It was brutal. The unconscious mind battling the conscious mind. You know, I'd wake up with hangover and say, I'm done forever. I'm never going to do this again. And as soon as the you know physical symptoms reside, cue alcohol again. So, so what was your mindset when you were in those hangovers? I was pretty similar to that. You know, I can tell you how many times I swore off alcohol forever. Like even while vomiting, you know, like I'm never doing this again, never doing this again. And, you know, even that night, be drinking again. You know, just like two different states of mind about it for, for years. Yeah, I never really knew what that was until I read, you know, the naked, This Naked Mind by Andy Grace does a great job of explaining it. Yeah, it's a book called by Catherine Ketchum beyond the influence which is the first book i read and she does a more of a scientific approach to that but yeah it's basically your unconscious mind which can react a third of a second faster than the conscious mind it's that part you know that lobe battling with the other lobe in the brain and it's huh. it's just brutal and studies show that small decisions and big decisions take the same amount of energy and that is one of the reasons why it's exhausting because in our mind we have this internal dialogue like when am I going to drink, where am I going to drink, how am I going to get it, I'm going to go to a different liquor store than the night before, oh, I'm not drinking, it's just exhausting. So great job, Mike, on 86 days of sobriety at age 33. I mean, you're still a pretty young guy, man, and and how, how has it been for you so far? Oh, it's been great. It's been great. I feel like I have so much more time just between not drinking and, and not being hungover. You know, it's just getting more stuff done, happier person. It's, it's been going all right. Nice. And so how did you do it? You know, it's, 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 it's tough to get 86 days of sobriety. How'd you do it? Well, listening to the recovery elevator was huge. You know, I felt like I was in the contemplation state of change, or if you're familiar with the stages of change. Like, I, I've been thinking about quitting. Like, I probably should quit drinking for years since I was 16 and listening to the recovery elevator was really what motivated me to just jump into the action stage. And, and, you know, I keep listening to it. I actually listened to this naked mind on audiobook, which was interesting because she is trying to change your unconscious beliefs about alcohol. So I would try to listen to that as I'm falling asleep, really try to brainwash myself. And I, and I feel like it worked. Nice. And so you mentioned when you were 16, you got sober for six months. You converted to Buddhism. It sounds like you already walked this walk when you were 16. When you did it again, when you were 32 or 33, were there any principles that you took from age 16 where you're like, I've done this before. I can do it again. There's a certain amount of uh, rebelliousness I have. And so like I, I will often remind myself that alcohol is just this dangerous poison that big alcohol is trying to jam down our throats. You know, they just take this poisonous shit and mix it with a ton of sugar and just force it on you, you know? And so I remembering that, really helps me to keep walking this path. Yeah, she talks about in the book the amount of money that Guinness spent on a Super Bowl ad. It's just sickening. It really is. However, in a football game a couple weeks ago, okay, there was an ad in the Super Bowl two years ago while there was this woman as a Budweiser ad who was basically saying, like, if you drink and drive, you are a despicable human being. It is a moral failing, this, that, and that. And it pissed me off. It really did because it's a disease. We become addicted to the product, the product that they're peddling. But I saw another ad that was like, you know, the guy declined to drink and he's like, I never drink when I drive. And, uh, you know, it's kind of headed in the right direction. Sure. There might be another one going back in the other direction in the future, but I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, where, where you're seeing the alcohol, what, what are your thoughts on big alcohol and the unconscious mind? 
Well, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Like even when I was trying to limit my drinking, I'd be like, today I need to not drive by this gas station because that's where I go to buy alcohol. And then you just drive a different route and there's a whole liquor store there. You know, it's just, everywhere you go, you go out to eat and you've got to hand the waitress the alcohol menu. Like, no, I don't want this. You know, they just, it's just like the default position is let's get drunk. You got to actively resist it. Actively resisted. And it's an affirmation. It's a daily thing. You got to flex those sobriety muscles. Now, when I asked my second question, tell more listeners more about yourself. You say you were married for six years, is that what you said? Yes. Awesome. And, and so was your spouse involved on this process of getting sober or did she just be like, hey, Mike, you haven't drank for a couple of weeks. What's up? You know, I didn't tell her until about the first week or so, just because I told her so many other times that I was going to quit drinking. Oh, okay. And I just was like, oh, she might just think this is bullshit, you know, but I really felt serious about it and decided to create some accountability. And she's, she's been very supportive. She's, she doesn't like drinking, you know, she would drink a little bit here and there, but she hasn't touched it since I've been sober. I and mean, she has her own history of alcoholism uh, with her parents and not with herself. But, hmm. you know, she, so she's been very happy that I've been sober. Nice. And so, so she's been an integral part of, of your journey, a big support system, it sounds like, right? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Tell me about your parents. You mentioned earlier in the interview that your parents, there's a history of alcoholism with your family, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, with, the, you know, my dad, with both of my grandfathers, pretty much with any man in my family, is there a history of alcoholism there, and, and just, like, you know, growing up, seeing my dad uh, just hammered almost constantly, you know, like, dozens and dozens of empty beer cans, you know, just, I don't know why I would have ever even picked up a beer after that experience, but here I am, you know. Is your father still around? He is, yeah, yeah, and he's, he's, Sober, you know, he lives out in Las Vegas, so I don't see him as often as I would like, but you know, I think I'm pretty, pretty due for a visit. Sure, sure, sure. And, and did anybody, like your grandparents, die of alcoholism or anything like that? No, not from alcoholism, but I mean, you can, you can kind of see the progression. You know, if you look at my parents, you can see my mom is a few years older than my dad, but she looks 20 years younger easily because she oh, doesn't wow. drink alcohol. But yeah, I don't, think, uh, I don't think we've had any deaths in the family due to alcoholism, not directly. Sure. So talk to me about earlier you said you're a social worker and you meet with people who are suicidal. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Now tell me about how alcohol is involved with your job. Not like you're coming in drunk, but I'm sure without alcohol, you might not have such a full client list. Oh yeah. Big time. Big time. We often have people who they become suicidal while drunk and maybe not as a direct result of drinking alcohol, but it certainly impacts their relationships and they might have some significant consequences in the community for being drunk and kind of just, they hit rock bottom and suicide starts to look appealing at time and at times, and, and oftentimes they'll feel much better when they're sober. And you know, unfortunately, sometimes that can be a cycle, you know, suicidal while drunk and sober feeling better. So how involved in this process are you with these people? Do you meet with them weekly, daily? I meet with them when they're having the crisis and then make referrals for ongoing treatment. So trying to connect them with either an inpatient hospital or an outpatient therapist or a recovery group or really whatever programs are out there in the community. I'm, I'm trying to connect them with that. So a lot of people who are listening look at 
their alcoholism, shall we say, their inability to drink like a normal person as a liability, both in the home life and the professional life as well. And I've, I've said many times on this podcast that it shouldn't be the case that your sobriety should be an asset, not a liability. Now, given there's early sobriety, I think your first couple months, maybe six months a year, it might not be something to tout. But with you, I don't know, have you thought about this? Like you've got a huge asset on your side and saying, you know, like not like pull them aside in a separate room, but you could be like, look, I think alcohol is causing the issue. And I can talk about this because I'm walking the walk. I've been sober for you know X amount of time. Have you told anybody that you that you're meeting with that uh, that you don't drink? And perhaps they should also think about making that life decision. No, I haven't done that. You know, I feel pretty skittish about involving my own sort of story in my work. But, you know, I have colleagues that do, and I think that can be helpful. But I'm just a little bit more introverted. And so when I'm meeting with somebody, it becomes like all about them and not necessarily like in the sense that like, you know, they did anything wrong or anything, but more about like, this is about like, how can I help you? And not not about like my own story, Mm -hmm. because it can really quickly turn into like, who's giving who therapy here? You know what I mean? Sure. 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 You know, if, if you're listening out there and you're a psychologist, a psychiatrist or whatnot, and you are in recovery and you're not open about that, I think it's a tremendous opportunity because there's a deficit. I know in Bozeman and I know across the United States, a deficit of of licensed counselors who are in recovery themselves because it's tough to meet with somebody about addiction who hasn't gone through that walk. So yeah, I hope you explore that more in the future, Mike, because I think that's a tremendous asset, not a liability. You know, I mentioned you, you might want to wait a little bit of time uh, before you come out with mm-hmm. that, but you might really, you might be able to work a different angle and, and help people at a faster clip. I think that's that's pretty cool opportunity. So you know, let's switch gears here for a second, Mike. You know, what what advice would you give to your younger self? You go back to your 16-year-old self, what would you say? Well, if I could give myself any advice, I'd like to go back to my 15-year-old self and smack the first beer out of my hand and drag myself back to school. And, you know, as far as people in early recovery, you know, I would say, don't blame yourself. You know, I feel like I, I disagree with AA's stance that, you know, some people can drink healthily. I feel like alcohol is this dangerous poison. It's super addictive. And, you know, there's companies spending millions, maybe billions of dollars to get you addicted to it. So stay away from it would be my advice. Don't be ashamed that it's hard. Yeah, I'm kind of torn on that question. You know, I, the part of me says I'll go back, talk to the young Paul Churchill. And, you know, I'll say, all right, have a seat and bust out the PowerPoint, the projector and the screen and do more of like a, you know, this naked mind tutorial about it and say, hey, dude, if you're going to drink, your grandpa was an alcoholic, it's in your genes. And here's the potential pitfalls. This is what's going to happen because no one ever talked to me about that. No one ever came to my school. In fact, I have a TEDx talk titled, I've been duped by alcohol. I just thought when I was 21, everything was free game, green light, all systems go. Of course, I didn't wait till I was 21. Don't know many people who did, but I'm also torn because... You hear in AA that advice is like, well, I might go back and tell Paul to drink up and, you know, drink up, meaning you got to feel the pain to get sober. And there's a whole journey. You can't skip any steps. You can only speed the process up. And for me, I'm thankful that I moved to Spain for three years because that sped the process up. I'd probably still be drinking had it not been for Spain. So I'm kind of torn on that, but, you know, great answer. I'd probably be my initial <laughs> my initial goal was to do an informational Q&A with the, with the Paul Churchill of old. So we'll see. And, you know, what are your thoughts on relapse, Mike? You got 86 days. You know, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I am scared of relapse, honestly. You know, I don't feel like I can take it lightly. 
I feel like I need to keep building my recovery portfolio. You know, I haven't really checked out the Facebook group yet, but I'm going to have to check that out. I had deleted my Facebook accounts because I get overwhelmed with the news and stuff, but I, I got to keep adding things to it. I can't just get lazy with it because that's when I'll fall off the track. So I totally understand that with Facebook. But one refreshing thing about Cafe RE is I don't check my normal feed anymore. I have it set up, so all I see is Cafe RE and Cafe RE Blue, the two groups. We're starting a third group in a month. But I understand when people are like, oh, it's on Facebook. Like, I can't do it. There's too much. So I understand that fully. But it's pretty cool the way I have it set up. Like, I don't see any of my, my news feed because that's not the real world, man. It's it's friends and you know people posting of material gains and this and that and you, you kind of your unconscious mind will take a beating after just watching that news feed well, some of it's fake news some of it's real news i don't know but you can you can tell that like you're getting behind in the game of life because it's just not authentic but you're not getting behind in the game of life because like i mentioned it's just full of pretentious posts so i do like reading the cafe re and the cafe re groups those posts because they're real. They're genuine. And there's people who are like-minded individuals just like myself. So, yeah, let me know if you have any questions after the phone call. We can talk about that. But, um, yeah, think about it. And so with 86 days of sobriety, Mike, have you had any cravings? And what do you do when I come? Yeah, I've really only had two cravings. I went out to Montreal for my birthday, and I had a craving there and just kind of rode that wave. That was the strongest craving just while I was like out at the restaurant you know there's a margarita poster right next to me so I was like oh wouldn't that be nice but just stayed strong remembered that it's only gonna last 20 minutes a half an hour and it went away I'm pretty distractible so I kind of forgot about it I had another craving just this week and it's the same kind of thing I just rode the wave you know they're, they're not coming very often unfortunately but I don't anticipate that it's always going to stay like that I, I know that they, they're going to come hard and I'm going to be prepared for that so what happened this last week when you said you got another craving I just got busy with other stuff, you know, like I was sitting at the house and I don't, I don't even know, I think I just, maybe I exercised or played some video games and I just did something else and it went away. You know, what surprised me in sobriety was when the cravings came with the good times, you know, when I first got sober, life sucked. Yeah, I had, I, had, I had a failed suicide attempt like a month before I got sober. I mean, life was not fun. I'll take my problems today, any day, over the problems I had when I was drinking over three years ago. But I was surprised, you know, month two, month three, month four, when good moments started to happen. You know, so I was investing in my life, and those when they started to pay dividends, that's when I got cravings. And it sounds like on your birthday, which should be like a fun, celebratory moment, a craving came. So I just... I just want listeners to be aware that, uh, you know, you're at a wedding. Uh, you know, you were times where you don't think you, you would get a craving, like the sun comes out after it's been raining for eight days. Like, wow, it's great. I want to drink. Damn it. It's not so much just like the bad times. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting for myself. You know, so walk us through a day in the life of Mike. How are you staying sober? How are you going to get day 87, day 88? And how are you going to get day 86, the rest of it? Yeah, just meeting my basic needs is like my number one priority eating, sleeping, staying hydrated, you know, keeping involved with the recovery elevator and reading about sobriety, just doing whatever I can to stay focused and, and on, on track here. Yeah, that's pretty key right there. You know, eating, sleeping, and drinking water and basically anything but alcohol. Those are, those are like three basic necessities that I overlooked and just sleep. That component alone is so huge to to building a strong foundation in sobriety is strong sleep. And I, I noticed I took a huge leap forward in sobriety, but when I'm also I'm tapering off my ADD meds, sleep is magical. It's wonderful. Being able to fall asleep, you know, watching a movie in different positions, it's a, it's a cool thing. Like I didn't experience that in my early teens. So it's, it's great to have that back. 
And what is something that you've gotten back in these past 86 days that you didn't really expect, but it's quite enjoyable? Well, I just last week started playing music again. I actually hadn't played any music since the fall. You know, what? Been, yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. And so like, picked up the keyboard again, started messing around a little bit. I'm not very good at it, but it helps. It definitely helps. You know, keeps you focused and, and in the moment because the second you stop paying attention to the music in front of you, it starts sounding horrible. So I've got to stay mindful and, and play music. <laughs> what are you playing on the keyboard? Some Elton John stuff? Oh, I wish. No, no. Just uh, level one stuff like, oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. You know, uh, beginner book. Yeah, but those were those were blockbusters, chart busters one day in their time. <laughs> Mike, don't downplay that one bit. <laughs> but what's on, what's on your bucket list with the keyboard? What what do you want to learn how to play? I'd like to learn how to play some Beatles songs. You know, they, they've got some nice piano tunes like uh, Hey Jude and you know, different things out there. It would be fun to mess around with on the piano. Yeah, Beatles songs are awesome. What's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, that's so hard to say. I would say, as far as an album, I'd go with the White Album. Mm, nice. I'm going to go with Imagine. <laughs> Me and about 400 oh, million yeah. other people. Yeah, and, and Mike, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, number one, Mike, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, definitely the day after the St. Patrick's Day party I went to last year, just being hungover as hell, talking to my wife and trying to piece together the night. Like, oh, my God, I did what? Uh, then what happened? And, oh, my God, she's going to be so mad at me. And, and just, just terrifying not knowing what I did and trying to piece that together. And that feeling is terrifying. And, and, Mike, we've all heard of the oh, shit moment. Did you ever have an aha moment realizing, oh, no, I might not be able to control my drinking? Yeah, actually, I, I would say I had a lot of times like that, but uh, the most recent time was the last time I drank, you know, when my wife was just out having fun, even which involved being sober and getting physical exercise, playing basketball out there with her friends. And I'm just like, well, I got the house myself. Let's get drunk. And, and like, you know, I was only wanted to drink two. I had two tall boys, got two more, and just way drunker than I wanted to be, just laying there, can't do anything, all by myself. That was awful. So with 86 days of sobriety, what's your favorite resource in recovery? And if, if it is Recovery Elevator, I appreciate it. you got to give us another one. Sure. I think this Naked Mind really is great as an audiobook. I'm sure it's great on page two, but listening to it over and over again, just as background music, well, not music, but, you know, in the background, was really helpful for me. Sure. Absolutely. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Mike? Well, you know, a wise man once said that alcohol is shit, and that is so true. It really resonated with my body's initial reaction to alcohol, and it once countered this national narrative that we have about alcohol that says alcohol is healthy in moderation and that it's fun for socializing. I mean, just it's addictive poison mixed with sugar, which some might say is also poisonous. Alcohol is shit. You heard it here. Alcohol is totally shit. You're 100% correct. And what guidance, what advice can you give to listeners who are thinking about taking the journey or are already doing it? Well, I think in early sobriety or you know, when we're in that contemplation stage, there can be this wrestling with this notion of, am I an alcoholic or not? Am I a normal drinker? And you know, I just don't like this term, alcoholic. I feel like it adds a layer of shame to the individual when the real problem is that alcohol is shit. Alcohol is addictive poison and anybody can become an alcoholic anybody can if they drink enough you know their body will become physically addicted to it and i've broken up with the word alcoholic as well i don't like the word it's more of a def definitive word statement yeah i like what you said and before we depart give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line 
you might be an alcoholic if you go to a St. Patrick's Day party thrown by one of your wife's supervisees, you spill red wine on his rug, you put your arm around another woman and rub her back while standing right next to your wife, then you black out, and the last thing you remember as the host of the party walks you back to your car, where you totally pass out in the passenger seat, is you raising both fists to the sky and yelling, I'm the king of the world! <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, yeah, listeners, I printed that off. I was like, oh, I'm... I'm going to read this one out, you know, but then I emailed you. It was like, hey, how about you just go on the podcast and say it? So I'm glad you did. You know, there's not really much they can do to you after that party because, Mike, you're, you're the king of the world, dude. I mean, what can they do to that? <laughs> I got nothing on that. So nice job. <laughs> That's awesome. Mike, thanks for joining us. Congrats on 86 days. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help moving forward to get day 87, 88, 89, 90, and keep moving forward. Thank you, Paul. Get 2018 started off right. Join us in Dallas, Texas on Saturday, January 20th. Come hang out with myself and other like-minded individuals. I'm going to do some speaking or do some networking, some laughing. It's going to be a blast. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas to get your tickets there. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast episode, and which is written in the 12 by 12, you don't have to fully succumb to these steps right now, but it's important you start the exploration of a higher power. I didn't fully find my HP. I think it was until November or December of 2014, and I got sober on September 7th of 2014. It came out of nowhere for me. My buddy has a cabin up in the Tobacco Root Mountain Range. It's a remote part about 50 miles west of Bozeman. We're walking on this dirt road, about four to five inches of snow. My other two buddies, they were walking ahead of me, and I decided to let them go, and I took a seat on a stump. I was sitting there just enjoying the peaceful nature. There's something about the forest with complete solitude that for me is just remarkable. And then, without warning, it came. The wind came through the pine trees and made an audible noise like a mother shushing a baby. There wasn't even a question in my mind of like, hey, is, is this my higher power? How, how, how are you? My name's Paul. I just knew right then that the wind in the pine trees, that was my higher power. Fortunately, I live in a place where I can always gain access to this. I call this a conduit, where I can have interaction with my higher power. And if you don't have a higher power yet, that's totally fine. If you're in Cafe RE, then that's your higher power. It really doesn't matter what the hell your higher power is, but it's important we realize we cannot do this alone. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I hope to see you in Dallas. We can do this.